there are different strategies that you know property strategists like us and the brokers working together you know come up with you know people call them loopholes we call them creative strategies but ultimately these are the areas where you know you try to be in the gray and you know push it as much as possible Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today's topic is something which is very, very important, especially in the current market and the lending market challenges. I have an expert who is a dear friend, a strategic partner uh, who handles my own personal portfolio and profile as well on a lot of the cases. Uh, we have a mortgage broker that is going to talk about how to get a million dollar loan on just a hundred thousand dollar salary. Let's do drum rolls and get in. Rob Moses. Rob, how are you today? I'm good, Mox. How are you? I am awesome, my friend. How's the day been? How's the week been? It's been a crazy week for myself, but what about you? Definitely, definitely been a crazy week. We've had uh, six settlements today, this week at our finance. So um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a big one. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, look, the hustle never ends. And I think this is an interesting topic, right? I think there is a lot of stereotypes that is out there. You know, people think that, you know, you're a higher income just naturally means higher uh, borrowing. But, you know, there are certain things that we're going to talk about in relation to, you know, what are the current market challenges? What are certain things that people need to think about in relation to boosting and pushing their serviceability or their borrowing capacity to the fullest? Uh, let's kick off, you know, talking about the banks in general. Let's try to understand from a layman's perspective for the viewers and the listeners how do really banks assist the lending per person or per family? You know, let's talk about that. Definitely. Look, it's been very challenging in the current market. Obviously, with interest rates going up, what someone's borrowing capacity was 12 months ago versus today is a very different thing. Uh, one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have is, well, I can afford the repayment, so why can't the bank give me the loan? Banks generally use a 3% buffer to be able to calculate people's borrowing capacity. So sort of a year ago, when everyone was sitting at around 25 to 3%, we were assessing if they could afford it at six in the current environment where rates are sort of triggering into that six price point. We're now assessing if people can afford it at 9%. So that's becoming a bit of a challenge for a lot of people, um, especially obviously customers that have traditionally borrowed heaps of money over the last year. A lot of them have kind of capped themselves out of the market. The other thing that people tend to look at is, well, this is my annual income. Why can't the banks give me money? Yes. There's a lot of rules that come into play. I mean, one of them obviously being rental income. It is shaved by the bank, so they take a lot of the rental income that you might be receiving and discount it by a figure, depending on the bank. So some banks will use 90, some banks will use 80, some banks are using as low as 60%. So these are some of the things that are impacting. You might be receiving this amount of income, but it's a lot less. The other thing that's been really challenging for some customers is single-income households. So with a bank, generally, they will look at your net annual income that's coming in to be able to afford a loan. So if you have one husband who's earning, say, 250000 and the wife isn't working versus a couple and both are sitting on 125000 the couple will actually be able to borrow quite a bit more because their net annual income is quite a lot higher. Yes. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't tend to see things, these, think these things through, right? Because when I was young, I used to always compare uh, myself to my brother and his wife and, you know, combine their income they were actually lower than my income at that time when I was in my corporate world. But I always used to think, you know, oh, why is the bank lending me less and lending them more? And ultimately, if you think about the net income, of course, there is a tax bracket in place. And so the disposable income that is available to a family is usually a lot more than a person because, you know, as you 
progressively earn more, you get taxed more. And so your net disposable income becomes lower and lower. I think one important thing that you talk about today is, of course, you know, this is how the banks differ. This is how the lending differs, right? A lot of people think that, oh, I've gone to the bank and spoken to the bank. If the bank says no, I cannot get any more money. And, you, you know, you go and speak out to various different brokers and, you know, some broker might get you higher lending and some brokers might get you lower lending, right? It just depends on what's the bank's lending criteria is, what sort of shavings are they applying for, how much risk appetite are they writing up, you know, what sort of DTI are they giving. And so all of these things need to be considered. And that's where a good broker basically dictates or decides as to how much borrowing that they, they can get because of the various different, you know, products that they are playing with and working with. And, you know, that's where they, you know, that's where they value for money. That's where the real gist of the conversation is, right? That, you know, ultimately a broker's value for money comes in at place where they can get you access to debt where a major bank is definitely saying no to you at this stage. 100%. And I worked for a major bank for about 10 years. So I can definitely tell you that there's a whole bunch of more or larger policies out there. Getting to a broker that can be able to cater to your individual profile is very important, um, especially as you start to grow your portfolio and have more complex kind of properties in there, whether it's um, a co-living property, whether it's a, you know an NDIS property or a standard property. You need to understand which banks are going to be able to give you the funding, which banks have more of an appetite for a certain type of transaction. So, Definitely. 100%. And I, I want to share a story here. And this is and this is a really funny story. I have a really good client of mine that I've worked with him on a long-term basis. I think, you know, he runs a really big business. He has a net asset base of close to about $20, $25 million quite easily, right? And so from his perspective, getting a loan is never difficult, but his structures are so complicated and so convoluted that every time he goes to the banks, it always becomes a, a different, you know, problem, right? And I remember, I think this was about five to six years ago, where he went to the bank asking for, I think, $150,000, right? Knowing that, you know, his LVR sits at, I think, 60 or 65%. Because of the difficulty of the structures, when he went to his own bank, the bank said, look, it's way too much work for the amount of loan that you're seeking. And so they blindly, blankly basically said no to them. They said, we're not going to give you this money. And so he came back to me and he's like, well, how does that work? Like, you know, why would they say no to, I have so much equity, so much money. And ultimately, the bank's risk appetite and the amount of work that they need to put in dictates a lot of these things where the brokers, you know, would put in a lot of work in a similar circumstance because, you know, they can write various different loans. They can create, you know, better uh, portfolio for these people, structure them better and still get paid out of some of these transactions, right? 100%. I mean, look, as someone who's worked at a bank beforehand, it definitely does come down to the value of the transaction, right? This target set for individual bankers to hit and a hundred or hundred and fifty thousand dollar top up, it might not be viable under where their structure is basically. Whereas a broker can look at it and go, well, I can refinance the whole portfolio. I can get this client a lot more lending with bank X, bank Y, and I've got a life term, a long term life client that's going to come back to me for more funding. So, you know, it's all about brand and reputation. Your client, obviously, if they've got a twenty million dollar asset base, will be generally connected to a lot more clients. So it's about that repeat business being generated from that uh, that relationship so um yeah sometimes you can get caught in that hustle of you know i've got to hit my targets i've got to get this and that where the strategy of looking after the client building that connection is really important in the broker world definitely and that's a good segue right i think you know there is a lot of stereotype around or you know with the interest rates rising at this stage you know everyone talks about positive cash flow property or i want to get a strong super positive cash flow property now, one of the biggest sort of dilemma around people's you know, mind is, oh, my interest rate in today's time is 6%. And so I need a property that generates 
seven or eight percent, right? And so I always tend to anchor people back to, oh, well, the interest rates were at eight percent in you know early two thousands, right? So were we were people who were actually going for like nine or ten or twelve percent interest, you know, rental yield property? No, not necessarily, because you need to look at some of these things from a long term perspective. And so the question here becomes, you know, more from a bank perspective. You know, while you think a property is not costing you any money to hold, how does that work in from a from a bank's perspective that those properties are still classified as negative cash flow property and still blocks your serviceability? Talk us a bit about that. Sure. I guess again, with the banks obviously assessing at that nine and a half to ten percent rate basically and shaving the rental income, a lot of people are still, even with positive cash flow properties being viewed by the bank as a negative. So it does restrict people from being able to borrow. What a lot of clients are now doing or looking at options for buying properties are under company trust structures. So one of the benefits under the current lending guidelines is that a bank will look at a company and as long as the company is trading profitably, the bank can consider no liability or will not look at the liabilities held under the company. Now, these things have allowed people to potentially own multiple properties under multiple companies with multiple borrowing structures under those companies. It is, a, I guess, a, an open environment to be able to do these things at the moment, but these things can change, right? APRA, obviously, is the regulator. They're the ones that will obviously impose sanctions, so we say, on the banks. So the banks are well aware of these things and are happy to look on the way because they can work in, within these rules. Similarly, if we go back, say, 10 to 15 years ago, before central credit reporting was a thing, clients could go to one bank, uh, apply for a loan, get their maximum capacity, and then go to another bank and not disclose their loans, basically, which allowed them to continue to buy more and more and more properties. I can remember you know, clients that were on $150,000 back in early 2000s that had 12 to 15 properties back then. Um, and the banks were happy to do it at the time because as long as the loans were being paid, they were happy to continue to do so. Definitely. But the challenge now is central credit reporting makes it, you know, hard to not disclose these loans and not to go around, you know, exploring all the different banks to do what you want to do. So I think for a lot of clients who obviously want to continue to push and be able to rely on that rental to be able to support it, it's a good opportunity to explore for the moment, but be mindful of, you know, 12 months, 24 months down the track. Once Once the regulator catches up, you could be in a position where you could be locked out and locked out quite hard from the market, basically. Yeah. And it's, it's a very interesting point that you make. I still remember, you know, if you go back to the old days, the pre-2000 days, right? A million dollar in serviceability could potentially mean million dollars with 10 different banks because they're not talking to each other per se, right? And so you literally have that $10 million portfolio. And so when people slog or, or you know, come out and talk, you know, majorly about, oh, I have 30 or 50 or 100 or even 200 or 300 properties, and they've been investing since early 90s, I, we know that, you know, that's the creative strategy that they've been following and that loophole has been closed. And so, you know, that cannot be replicated in today's time frame. Of course, you know, there are different strategies that, you know, property strategists like us and the brokers working together, you know, come up with, you know, people call them loopholes. We call them creative strategies. But ultimately, these are the areas where, you know, you try to be in the gray and, you know, push it as much as possible. I, I remember my own story uh, when I was buying a property. I basically went to two banks and settled two loans at the same time with two different banks and bought two properties at the same time. So I had the equity to basically pull some of these things through. And ultimately, the question was that, you know, how far do you want to take this? And of course, you know, don't try this at home 
Uh, and none of this is, you know, financial advice or legal advice or, or tax advice. Of course, you know, reach out to your own accountants. Don't try to do any of these things. But what we are sharing here today is some of the things that, you know, investors had been doing in the past. And so some of these things don't work today. And while the trusts work today, what you are talking about basically is that, you know, some of these things could be, you know, under the carpet, under the radar right now. But, you know, regulators can see what's happening and, you know, they can close some of these you know, gray areas or, you know, creative strategies quite quickly can get, get onto it. 100%, 100%. Much like tax shelters and all of those kind of things, they're always changing. So 100%. being ahead of the curve is really important. Definitely. Let's talk about, let's talk about the lending and the income and the, the relationship between the two, right? I think a lot of people tend to think about lending in a much more linear fashion. You know, they think that it's only the income that gets into their bank on a weekly or a fortnightly basis is what counts, right? There is various forms of income. So talk to us a bit about that, you know, you know, in a notion that every bit counts, you know, when it comes to the boring side of things. 100%. I mean, we've got clients that are paid from a variety of different income structures. People are working multiple jobs now. Some banks will obviously shave a second job because they understand that a client can't work 60, 70 hour weeks on an ongoing basis, basically. You've also got things like overtime and allowances that are also shaved depending on the bank that you go to and there's also industry professions that generally will work overtime as part of their profession so people like nurses and truck drivers um, there are certain lenders that understand that this is going to be an ongoing part of their employment so they're more comfortable utilizing that full income as opposed to taking a lower side of it the other interesting one is bonuses and commission payments Um, especially we're still coming out of the back of covid banks tend to look back two years so when you're looking at how people received a bonus in that, I guess, COVID year, a lot of pay employers didn't pay bonuses during that period of time. So having banks that are comfortable to look at an appetite going back three years, then having a look at the last year and then going, okay, well, we'll ignore the COVID year. Um, that's another interesting one as well. You've got some self-employed clients that are also paying themselves a wage regularly from the business. We have certain banks that will accept that as well. And that obviously allows a lot of clients that might necessarily draw a you know ten or fifteen thousand dollar payment into their account to be able to borrow. When they look at their tax returns, it might not look as pretty a picture. But obviously, the the ability for the customers to pay themselves a wage and they know their business can support that, it allows them to continue to borrow. Yes, yes. And look, look. I mean, the the side hustle. The important point that you make is you know having that side hustle or that side business. You know, can do on this for a lot of people. You know, even that extra ten, fifteen thousand dollars coming from the business. For anything, you know, um, it, you know, it does one this from a serviceability point of view, and it it does a lot of things. I think the key point that you know we can explore a bit further is more in relation to people who are running businesses, and so they are in this constant battle of I don't want to show money in my tax returns because I don't want to pay taxes, but the banks want to see that money come into the taxes, and so how do you navigate through some of these things? Definitely, I mean, look, as someone who's self-employed. That's the whole point of going self-employed, right? To minimize your tax, to claim your personal expenses. Uh, well, not personal expenses, they are business expenses, but things like buying, obviously, a vehicle, things like having insurance for your vehicle, all of these things can be utilized as a business cost. Uh, the challenge comes into play is that when you're claiming all these costs, how do you add those back as income? So for self-employed clients, things like depreciation, interest expenses on business loans, those can be added back as a form of income. Again, navigating the right client, sorry, the right bank for the, for the particular client is very important in this situation. So what I tend to do is when I'm evaluating somebody's tax returns for being self-employed, 
we sit down, understand exactly what they're trying to do, whether it's buying a house for a million dollars or buying a house for half a million dollars, and then determine the setup to go through. There are also lenders out there that are called low-doc lenders that specialize in low-doc products, which allow self-employed clients with their accountants um, to back them up with obviously statements to self-declare their income. Obviously, banks understand that being self-employed, it might not necessarily be a true reflection of what's on your tax return. So having that option to be able to just say, look, I earn $150,000 a year. I'm confident I can draw this, especially if it's interim through a financial year where their business has been doing better compared to the last financial year, it allows them to be able to borrow just purely on that self-declaration letter and obviously an accountant letter to supplement that as well. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's about exploring the right, cli- the right type of product for the right client. Definitely. And look, I think the other also important thing to consider is being proactive around some of these things. You know, um, I always say, you know, have a strategy in place, think in the future, think about what your business needs to do in order to create that wealth for your own personal being or your own, you know, generational wealth that you're referring to. And so work very closely with the broker, work very closely with your accountant in anticipating, okay, how is the next year going to look like? You know, if I'm, if I'm planning to buy two properties, then plan for that. You know, there is, it's okay to, you know, befriend the tax man and pay a bit of tax. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that in order to generate more income. Or I think people fall into this negative policy that, oh, I need to save money. I need to save money. Saving does not get you rich. It's ultimately spending more money to make more money gets you to where you want to get to. So it's a very important point. Uh, discretionary spending. How does that work from a bank's perspective? You know, let's talk about discretionary spending in a lens of, you know, people overextending into their personal loans or hex debts and, you know, afterpay these days and credit cards and car loans. How does all of that come into account when you're talking about, you know, getting a loan, especially in the current market? For sure. We'll touch on all of those individually because they're all a few different def- separate categories, basically. But I'll start with discretionary spending from a bank account. Now, especially in, with this recent cost of living increase, um, a lot of people's expenses have gone up. and I guess where it comes to discretionary versus non-discretionary, the bank is quite black and white on these things. Whatever you're spending is considered your discretionary, your, your, your living expenses, right? And that can vary. Um, a lot of people have the capacity to tighten their belt when things get tough. And you've got a loan, obviously. The idea is to continue to hold on to your loan for as long as possible and continue to hold on to all of your properties. So especially if we come out of periods like Christmas or whichever period you've gone through, people's spending tend to be higher at this period of time. So the window with which you apply is very important. Banks will generally look at a period of three months back to review your living expenses. So I always tell my clients, obviously, when you're looking at that as a window, how have your expenses been over the last three months? Um, As a mortgage broker, it's my responsibility to go through your accounts, review your living expenses with you. If things are inflated, I can remember a few years ago, I had a client who was hosting parties at his home during Ramadan, basically, to um, have people attend. So his living expenses were quite high during that period of time. So I was able to mitigate with the, client, with the, with the bank saying, look, these are inflated. He has, he's having you know, people coming over at this period of time. Here's evidence of cash deposits from other people paying him for that. So there is a way to obviously have that conversation, tailor it. I think it's important for us as mortgage brokers to understand exactly what our clients are spending. What is discretionary? What is non-discretionary? people are going through hard times, a family member might be sick, that might not necessarily reflect their true living expenses all the time, basically. Now, when you're talking about liabilities like personal loans and credit cards, uh, the challenge comes into play if you have a high credit card limit 
the banks will assume that if you max out that credit card, what is going to be the minimum payments towards it? So let's say, for example, I have a $30,000 credit card limit. The banks will assume a minimum expense on that credit card of $900 per month. Nine, uh, 3% generally is a rule as a net monthly commitment. Uh, so some of our clients might not need a $50,000 limit or a $30,000 limit on their credit card. They will adjust it back down, obviously, to support the loan proposal. Personal loans tend to be one of the worst ones to impact your borrowing, especially in relation to cars. As a you know, non-appreciating asset, a vehicle is obviously a, a, a purchase that people make as, a, as something that they want as opposed to something that they need. So banks will cater that as a full you know, expense. Generally, the terms on that are four to five to seven years, and they can obviously be quite a hit to your borrowing capacity. Usually what we like to look at is if there's ways to be able to consolidate that into a mortgage to be able to amortize those repayments over a 30-year term, it can generally have a huge uh, increase in a client's borrowing capacity. So exploring the client, if they've got the equity to be able to support it, maybe we do a separate loan for the car against the mortgage. If it's being claimed as a deduction or whatever the case is, at least it's a 30-year term as opposed to a you know five-year term or a seven-year term. I think one thing to, to chalk this through out in relation to cars and the business expenses is, right, if you are running a side hustle and if you have an opportunity to park the car in the business, let's do that, right? You know, a lot of people make that mistake of buying the car in their personal names, you know, without using a company, even a, a company that's doing bare minimum where the car is requirement, just park it there, right? You know, there is a lot of financiers out there who would lend you on a company financial, you know, even doing a bare minimum, you know, for the car perspective. So, you know, some of these little ticks and tricks being reactive when a client comes to you and says, hey, I have a car that is already has a personal loan to it or a car loan to it is a lot more difficult to, you know, sort out versus a client coming to you and say, hey, I want to buy a car and be like, hey, go, you have this company that is doing small amount of work and business. And I think that, you know, speak to your accountant, you might need a car in that business. How about you park that car in that business and get a loan through there? And that basically frees up your, your borrowing capacity as well. 100%. And again, obviously, for businesses that have been trading for a short period of time, sometimes the client doesn't know that they've got the option to be able to take that finance out under a business. So again, this is a speciality that I've recently gone through because I've just purchased a vehicle under my you know, business. Understanding which, business, which lenders are happy to look at clients that have had short-term employment under their business, basically, um, having a look at their previous PAYG earnings. There's a lot of lenders out there that have got an appetite for people, especially if they're working in the same profi- profession, basically. Definitely. Um, the last one that you touched on was HEX. So I think that's an interesting one, especially coming July 1 um, this year with the huge indexation coming through on HEX. Yes, crazy. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting how the banks will cater that as a commitment moving forward. Currently, they're obviously utilizing whatever's been used for this current financial year, but I'm assuming July 1st, payslips are going to be a lot lower with net annual income after those hex payments come out, basically. So it'll be interesting how that gets impacted. So if clients have a capacity to be able to pay off their hex, we always advise them to do so because it's one of those things that the banks definitely push people down quite hard with hex, basically. Yeah. And what's the way out? Is it better to just acquire a property, catch some growth and use it to consolidate all of these debt into a single mortgage that goes over 30 years or refi over 30 years? You know, is that a better strategy to basically outperform your own property portfolio in relation to the borrowing capacity side of things? Or, you know, is there something better that you would suggest and, you know, prefer? I think it really depends on the client, right? So for a lot of people, the, the, the challenge for buying your first property is getting that deposit together, right? 
So if you've got PECs, if you've got personal loans and you've got credit cards, you're trying to obviously pay these things off, but you're also trying to get into the property market, right? In an ideal situation, a client paying off all their debts and coming to us with a 10% or 15% or 20% deposit would be the ideal scenario. But the challenge is that if you're paying rent, you're paying off all of these debts, by the time you've managed to do so and then get into the market, the property might have gone up by $100,000, $300,000, depending on the market that you're in and how long it takes you to save. So it's a real balancing act. I think sitting down with a client, understanding their strategy, if they're paying an exorbitant amount of money in rent, which is what's happening in Victoria and New South Wales, it might be a better option for them to get into the market with a mortgage to be able to do so, rely on the equity growth, and then consolidate the debt 12 to 18 to 24 months down the track. Definitely. There's a lot of things changing with deposit requirements, um, first-time loan deposit schemes, allowing people like their parents and other members to be able to borrow with them. So yeah. it's uh, it's an interesting one. Um, yeah. But I think it really depends on the individual situation, their ability to save, their ability to manage multiple liabilities um, at the same time as well. And also the important thing here is that, you know, a lot of, you know, I would call out the, the, the age bracket, you know, I would say like 22 to say 26, 27, 28 year old who are trying to break into the property market for the first time, you know, their natural thought processes and, you know, I would, you know, blame this on a lot of property profits and property gurus out there that, you know, go out with a big bang, right? You know, buy an 800000 or a million dollar property or a $600,000 property. You can start off quite small when you're building up your property portfolio. You need, you don't need to go for a $700,000 or $800,000 property, right? Naturally, people who are living in Sydney and Melbourne, you know, they almost have uh, this thinking that, oh, I don't think that, you know, you can buy a property less than 600, right? You know, you can buy a property for even 300, 350, you know, quite easily in today's time as well. So it's about making sure that, you know, even if you have enough to enter into the market, the entering into the market is more important. And as soon as you have entered, then that gives you the opportunity to consolidate, catch more growth and, you know, be more creative around some of these, you know, strategies, of course, you know, go back and speak to your broker, keep them, keep all of these, you know, trusted advisors into one place, you know, they all need to be on the same page working for you, rather than, you know, everyone has their own sort of, you know, self-serving bias of, you know, taking you into different direction, right? And we'll do a separate podcast talking about why not every every broker is the same. But I think that it's a very important sort of thinking that, you know, the broker needs to do its work, the accountant needs to do its part, the property planner or the uh, the property strategist or the buyer's agent needs to do their part in order to you know deliver a successful outcome for the client hints you know and this is the most talked about topic i think um, every time you know people come to me more in relation to strategies the question always comes about you know should i get married and get a property should i not get married and get a property should i have a kid and then get a property should i not have a kid and get a property first and then have a kid What's the take on, you know, some of these sort of, you know, interesting dilemmas? Definitely. Look, it's, it's becoming more challenging for young people today. I really feel for them. As someone who bought their first property when I was single on a moderate income at the time, maybe 70,000, give or take, and was able to borrow eight to nine times my annual income, it's a lot different these days. I mean, we're trending to six times annual income, even as low as five. Obviously, once you add kids into the equation and maybe a partner's on maternity leave where you're supporting them. It could be as low as three times annual income. I think the best case scenario for a lot of clients to come through would be newly married or a couple that are going to be in that position to get married and looking to borrow as both on that, you know, full-time annual incomes, basically. Once you chuck a child into the mix, especially the first child, 
Uh, a lot of clients lose between seventy-five to a hundred thousand off their borrowing capacity, and that's mainly because of the increased costs of the household. The banks will determine. You obviously generally have one person working part time at that period of time, or you have a huge amount of money that's going towards um, paying for daycare and a range of other things. And especially if you've got clients that are on higher incomes, they're obviously paying a higher amount for daycare, basically. So it's it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I think look, if you if you can do it and do it right, the best time would be to do it before kids. But life gets in the way, right? You know, you want to be able to grow a family. That's the whole point that people are trying to accumulate wealth for, right? It's not for themselves, but for that next generation. So balancing that, determining when the right time is to be able to have children or start to have children is when you've got a healthy investment portfolio, a healthy amount of debt that you're comfortable to manage on one income. Maybe even also having a cash buffer at that period of time to help support it is very vital. And so the, the, how does the hierarchy look like? Because naturally the question becomes is, you know, should you buy the properties around the kids or should you buy, the, should you not buy, should you, you know, give the birth to the kids around the properties, right? So uh, what does is, what is the typical hierarchy look like in some of these things, you know? So if there are two husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, should they buy the properties first in their own personal names without coming in together? And then once they decide to, you know, tie the knot or be engaged or be in a de facto relationship, then buy the second property together, then have a kid or, you know, and or keep accumulating the properties till they have a kid and then, you know, basically go in that direction and navigate through some of these things. Is that the right approach? Would you say that, you know, there should be some different approach that we should be taking around some of these things? That's an interesting one. So I have seen examples of both, right? So I've had clients where as single individuals, they bought properties together. The challenge comes into play when they're now looking to buy together as a couple is that those individual liabilities are viewed as 100% commitments for both of them, basically. So in an ideal situation in the past, it would have been husband buys property, has two or three properties, wife has two or three properties, then they come together, they'd be able to explore and buy more. Those liabilities being viewed as 100% liabilities definitely pose a new challenge, basically. There have been cases in the past where banks previously would look at them as individuals, but nowadays, obviously, everything is viewed as 100% liable for both. Definitely. Yeah. And, and that's where the trust comes into, you know, comes into account, right? I think the trust plays its biggest part, you know, if an investor is an astute investor, you know, be it a husband and a wife or a boy or a girl, you know, in their 20s, if they start using the trust at very early in this stage of their life and start building their investment portfolio within the trust, protecting it within its own niche, then, you know, the true trust when it comes together, the banks lo- would look at it, you know, from a quite different perspective versus, you know, people bringing in their own personal, you know, profiles together. 100%, 100%. And again, under those current guidelines that they are at the moment, effectively, if those individual company as trustee for trusts are self-sufficient, the client's individual borrowing capacity is not impacted at all. So in an ideal situation, the family home would obviously be the one that's held by them jointly as a couple. And investments obviously would be held under company trust structures. Obviously, benefits from taxation that we can't discuss could be another benefit there as well. Asset protection sides of things, which could be good for them too. Ability to distribute income potentially to future offspring is another benefit as well. Definitely. So there's a lot of things that clients can do to be able to grow their wealth. There are also lenders that, let's say, for example, husband and wife have a loan together and the husband wants to go out and buy an investment property under his own name. Let's say he's the main income earner and has more tax deductibility. There are some lenders that will only consider half of his liability towards that mortgage, provided the wife can cover hers. So again, it's really important to tailor the situation to the client. 
we need to look at the banks that can support some of these things. And some of them obviously will view them as 100% liable. Some of them will only view them as 50% liable. Definitely. Definitely. And look, I mean, a lot of important points raised. And so again, you know, just wrapping this scenario up, you know, ensure that, you know, you're talking to your accountant, you're talking to a mortgage broker, of course, talking to your, you know, better half or your missus, ensuring that you're thinking proactively about, you know, how to plan a family together with or around your investment, you know, goals or investment strategies, investment outcomes. Of course, you know, reach out uh, to a financial advisor or a financial planner to discuss your financial side of the equation. But when you're talking about property and property plans, I think we have talked in a lot more detail as to what the path or the critical path should look like. You know, if you are deciding where you're in the piece in building your property portfolio, that this brings us to more the question of uh, people who are transitioning out of PAYG into, you know, contracting world or, or people who are between contracts, you know. And I, I get a lot of queries from people who say, oh, you know, I'm earning the same amount of money, but the banks don't want to talk to me because I've just moved on a contract or I've just changed contracts. And I always say that, you know, I'm not sure as to why would the broker say that you're not eligible for a loan, you know, talk, talk us through in relation to some of these intricacies around, okay, how would the bank view a person who's moving from a PAYG to a contract role or is between contracts uh, or working on an ABN? How does that funding still work through for these people? Definitely, definitely. Look, there's a lot of misconceptions out there, even amongst brokers, basically. So depending on the situation, right? Ideally, you want a client who's worked in the same area beforehand, who's transitioning from being PAYG in that role to potentially being contracting under an ABN. Depending on the lender, depending on the appetite, depending on the ability to prove the level of income, there's definitely ways that we can explore it. It's quite common these days. A lot of people are moving from PAYG to contract. A lot of employers are happy to be able to do that. There's obviously things like nine months, 12 month contracts with the ability to renew after the fact. So the challenge has always been, how do we show this is ongoing, right? And one could argue the nature of PAYG employment, standard employment, how do you prove that's ongoing, right? How do you know that that person is going to be in a job three months after you settle the loan or even one month after you settle the loan? So being able to present the situation, show the portfolio, show the client's ability to find work is really important. Again, having the right commentary, having the ability to discuss that with the person approving the loan. So to give you a bit of context, a lot of the work that I do as a mortgage broker, besides obviously the client gathering side of things, is having those conversations with the bank, being able to work within their policies, having actual conversations with the person that's going to approve the loan. So being able to sell the story. I can remember a few years ago, I was, and I won't mention names, but I was looking after a client who was a sporting celebrity. And the concern that the bank had at the time was that if we're doing the loan for this client, they only have a certain window of employment they can do as this as a sporting celebrity, basically. They're not going to be able to do this for the next 30 years. So I was able to explain to the bank that although this person is obviously going to be only working as a sporting celebrity for the next three to five years, they're after, I guess, after their employment as a sporting celebrity, they have other opportunities open to them. They could be a commentator, they could be a, a career coach. So showing and having those commentaries and discussing those things is very important. And that's, I guess, the brunt of what a mortgage broker or a banker in general has to do is sell the story. You can automate most things to do with loans, but being able to sell the story, show the appetite, give a reasoning why a loan should be approved is very, very important. I'd say that's the art of, uh, of finance or mortgage broking at this stage. And I think that, again, that, you know, you, we are coming back to, you know, value for money, right? That's where the real, you know, value proposition of a 
you know, mortgage broker comes in place. You know, I've been in situations where, you know, the bank have said no to me, uh, but a mortgage broker has been, you know, able to, and you yourself, you know, I've been numerous occasions where, you know, you have taken me through and got me a loan where, you know, a typical bank would definitely say no to me, right? So it's always about leveraging the profile, understanding the client's requirement and, you know, achieving those outcomes. In the current market, you know, what do you think are the, the, the core challenges for us to navigate through and how do you see a client, you know, getting three or five properties on a 100K loan? You know, what are the key sort of takeaways? You know, let's wrap this up. Yeah, look, I mean, I think we've touched on them a lot, but the, the company trust structure seems to be one of the ones that's really helping people to leverage and buy multiple properties. I think it's really important that the clients understand their cash flow situation. So regardless of whatever lending you can achieve, you want to make sure your household is not impacted to a large extent. So it might be a case where you buy a property that offers a high attractive rental yield, but might be slower in terms of capital growth, and then potentially complement that with another property that might be giving a less aggressive rental return, but good capital growth on the back of that as well. So it's important to have the right kind of properties in your portfolio. And I think that's where uh, a lot of people come to you, Mox, to be able to have those conversations, balance out those portfolios so that you can do things. Yeah, look, I think understanding the individual situation, how they determine their income, how much income they're actually deriving from various sources is very important and uh, attributing it to the to the right lender that's going to be able to support the deal. So, you know, you've got clients that might be receiving pensions. You've got some banks that will accept supplementary income as net income from those kind of things. You've got people that are, um, you know, transitioning through to retirement that might be drawing funds from SMSF. How do we determine that income and utilize that to the right method as well? Multiple avenues to purchase properties besides obviously the company trust structure and individual structure. You've also got people buying properties within their SMSFs as well. And the lending on those kind of properties can be really interesting because the banks won't look as much at your individual personal situation. They'll look at it more as how a client would look at it. How much rental income is this property generating and how much of interest repayments are on these particular mortgages? can the two marry up? And is if it's a yes or a no, we can give you the loan, basically. Definitely, definitely. And ultimately, you know, when you talk about, you know, people on 100K income, you know, acquiring four or five properties, you know, we have numerous clients who have done that, you know, numerous number of times now, you know, I would say hundreds of them, actually. Now, the important thing is this is not a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, you cannot do that in, you know, one year or two year and anyone who promises that is definitely lying. It is a long-term process. It is a strategic process. You have to work very closely with your accountant, with your broker in order to get to where you want to get to. You need to ensure that you're buying right, you're buying the right yields, you're, you know, aiming for the right growth and you're packaging it together to ensure that you're always telling a good story to the bank, right? It's all about, as you said, you know, the story, the risk capital that you're showing to the bank. And so if you can clearly articulate that to the bank, that you're you know, buying the right properties, you're chasing the right yields, you're getting onto the right growth and the broker can narrate that story to the bank, the bank would always love you and, you know, you would scale slowly and gradually over a period of four to five years sort of time frame at the window. Any parting words, Rob, before we wrap this up, you know, what are the key things that you would say to our viewers and listeners, you know, in relation to, you know, the current market conditions, you know, in general? I think it's really important in this current environment, especially with people coming off the back of their fixed rates, with interest rates increasing, to talk to your bank, talk to your broker, and determine if you're getting the best deal out there. There's a lot of variance in interest rates at the moment. Everybody is undercutting each other left, right, and center. So if you can find a way to secure a better rate, 
I think it's a really important thing to do. Have a look at what's available. I mean, even with the market softening in terms of the equity for people that have purchased over the last 12 to 18 months, you'd be surprised in the variance in valuations out there between different banks as well. So if one bank tells you no, that doesn't mean it's no. You could have a look out there and see 10, 15 different other banks that might be able to help you get to your goal. So have those discussions. Awesome. Thank you very much. This was Rob from Our Finance. Thank you for having Thank you for coming in the office today and having such a you know wonderful conversation, Rob. It, it's always amazes me that there is so much stuff that people have misconceptions about. Hopefully, we can yeah we have touched on a few things. You know, viewers and listeners who are listening and viewing us today, if you have any questions, comments, please do jump into the comments below. You can reach out to Rob at rfinance.au or, or jump on, onto his website. He you know he has his own Instagram or or Facebook, so definitely feel free to reach out to him or reach out to us. And we can put you in touch with him as well. Thank you for listening to us again. Stay safe, keep smiling, keep investing. This is Moss and Rob checking out. Adios. (laughs) 